Acts 21, beginning of verse 7. This is God's word. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus and saluted the brethren, abode there with them one day. The next day, we, were, we that were of Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Humanity is generally risk-averse. And making this claim, I am sure some of you immediately will retort using the example of adrenaline junkies. Uh, I would respond that people are generally risk-adverse uh, out to risks outside of their comfort zones. After all, the therapist may balk at taking up a rifle and marching into the war zone, while a soldier will balk and avoid the therapist couch. Of course, you can find uh, any exception to prove the rule. Now, we may agree with Shakespeare's Falstaff that the better part of valor is discretion. Uh, we may even consider this phrase a Christian dogma, unless you remember, of course, that Falstaff says this, justifying the fact that he was pretending to be dead on a battlefield. C.S. Lewis reminds us that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Screwtape actually accuses God of creating a dangerous world, a dangerous world, I'll put that in quotes, uh, in order that this is a world in which moral issues really come to the point. The hazards we face reflect actually the nature of a sin-affected world rather than a world created with dangers uh, from the beginning. Risk avoidance, though, is really only rel relative. There are uh, risks in everything. You encounter risks getting out of the bed. And if you think that you, you can avoid that risk by staying in the bed, well, there's risks for that as well. Now, this discussion of risk does not mean that we ought not to practice prudence and wisdom. Walking, after all, walking in the middle of, the, of a busy street is not a Christian virtue. However, our temptation in this culture seems to be toward the cowardly rather than toward the foolhardy. And for this reason, we do well to consider uh, the relentless journey of Paul towards Jerusalem. We've been following Paul from Ephesus as he journeyed through Greece on his way to Jerusalem. We remember that the third missionary journey is, you could almost not call it the third missionary journey, you could call it Ephesus, uh, because that was the focus of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, he goes to Ephesus, he stays in Ephesus, and then he goes to Jerusalem. And that's kind of the, the whole uh, recounting of the third missionary journey. 
Now, as he has gone from Ephesus to Jerusalem, we know that Jerusalem is not his ultimate destination. His ultimate destination is actually Spain. But uh, the road to Spain runs through, at least for Paul, Jerusalem and Rome. By the time he gets to Miletus on this journey, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has informed him that bonds and suffering await him in Jerusalem. And yet undaunted, as he tells this to the elders in, in Ephesus, he continues his journey. The Christians at Tyre, we saw last week, tell him the exact same thing, and yet still he continues. And finally, in this passage, he receives one last warning, if you will. And the way this warning arrives is through the character of Agabus, one that has shown up previously in Acts. And as he returns to Luke's narrative, I want us to consider his city, his demonstration, and his effect. His city, his demonstration, and his effect. We discuss, we begin with a discussion of his city, or at least the city in which Paul meets him. At the beginning of the story, we find the location of the city and its inhabitants. Paul and his companions continue their journey southward down the eastern coast of the Mediterranean uh, from Tyre. You see that in verse 7. When we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. The next city in which they arrive is the city uh, Ptolemaeus, a port city that was named in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's conquest of the eastern Mediterranean. It's a name that its name reflects the turbulent times of the intertestamental period. It's an interesting location, and yet a stable church seems to fo have formed in that city, even if it does not ap appear in the New Testament. You see that we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren. There, obviously, there is a church there in that city, and they stay with them uh, for a day, and only a day. For Paul must continue his journey uh, southward, and likely this is still a seafaring journey, uh, and finds its terminus in verse eight. The next day, we, uh, the next day that we that were of Paul's company, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. Having reached Caesarea, the rest of the journey will take place over land. They will go from Caesarea to Jerusalem over land. Uh, Caesarea is a city uh, where they will encounter Agabus. Caesarea is a city on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea uh, there in uh, Palestine. It, it was built by Herod the Great and named after the emperor. Then it was Augustus, Octavius, uh, who becomes known as Caesar Augustus. Uh, Paul, uh, if you think about it, in verse 7, Paul visits a city with a Greek name, and in verse 8, he visits a city with a Latin name, the city uh, that was the Roman administrative seat uh, for Judea. Perhaps Luke specifically notes these cities and their uh, Christian inhabitants to demonstrate the peaceableness of the church in these areas. Remember, there's a theory that Paul is writing the book of Acts as a kind of defense for, uh, excuse me, Luke's writing the book of Acts as a defense for Paul before some Roman administrators, but probably in the city of Rome, because that's where the book ends. And if he do is doing it for this reason, then the fact that there are cities, that there are churches, peaceable churches, in cities bearing Greek and Roman names is evidence that the church is not uh, a wild, rebellious uh, group that the Roman uh, administrators need to pay attention to. 
However, uh, Paul will soon return to Caesarea in chains. Uh, this uh, time in Caesarea that he has is just kind of uh, uh, the beginning of his task there. He will then go to Jerusalem, be arrested, and then brought back to this very city to stand trial before Roman administrators. Here in the city, uh, we find Philip. We find Philip here in the city where Luke left him in Acts chapter 8, verse 40. Remember Acts chapter 8, Philip the evangelist goes from Jerusalem to Samaria, uh, and then from Samaria to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then from the Ethiopian eunuch he goes to Caesarea. Paul also has visited this city before when this uh, city, when the church helped him escape uh, from Jerusalem to Tarsus. You remember Paul's converted in, in Acts chapter 9. He go, uh, on the road to Damascus, he's there in Damascus, then he has to flee out of D- Damascus. He spends some time in Arabia, then he goes to Jerusalem. The religious leaders in Jerusalem find out he's there and want to uh, persecute him and capture him. And so he escapes from Jerusalem by the help of the church who helps them to, him to go both to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. It's there that Barnabas will get him and drag him, or drag him, but take him uh, to Antioch. And we know that Caesarea also has another history. It is the place where the Gentiles first hear the gospel through Peter in chapter 10. Now, this is interesting because we know that Philip has already been there in Acts chapter 8. And so there's probably a Jewish uh, church there that Peter is sent by the Lord to increase with a number of Gentiles. And so this church probably has both Jew and Gentile members in the city of Caesarea. Luke describes Philip here as one of the seven to distinguish him from the apostle bearing this name. And so this is how we get the understanding that the Philip mentioned in Acts chapter 8 is this Philip, one of the seven uh, mentioned in Acts chapter 6. The Bible uh, never calls them deacons, even though uh, that's our understanding of them generally now. Luke calling him uh, the evangelist uh, gives us the idea of what he uh, was charged to do. And along with Philip, uh, Luke introduces us to his daughters in verse 9. The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Whether Philip had a family before the events of Acts chapter 8 or whether he married after coming to Caesarea, we don't know. We do know that he, at this time, has four unmarried daughters through whom the Lord uh, gives revelation to his church. This was a time before the closing of the canon, And so prophets and tongues were being used by God's people to validate the revelation, the continuing revelation that was coming. Curiously, Luke doesn't record anything that these four women prophesied or any prophecy that they may have had, in fact, uh, particularly of uh, concerning Paul. This would imply that they did not share in the chorus of the warnings that were coming to Paul. It suggests that that their prophecy concerned other matters. This uh, one verse, you know, kind of gives me a bit of agita because, well, not agita as much, but it causes me to think. And I think that it often represents this reality that we have two sides of viewing women's ministry in the church. Liberal Christianity violates the proper role of, of men and women by ignoring the resp- requirements of Scripture. And conservative Christianity often can be accused of not knowing to do with texts like this 
in which women prophesy. And I think that, that we need to reflect on uh, this idea that there is a valuable role that women play within the church that ought to be within the bounds of Scripture. Perhaps the best ministry women serve appears not in the environments in which people assume ministry takes. I think we often have very myopic, very closed, very narrow views of what ministry looks like. It looks like what I do. And I'd like to take people by the throat and say, no, that's not, that's not everything ministry looks like. Ministry doesn't look like necessarily standing up and speaking in front of people. And ministry doesn't look like a bunch of guys sitting around deciding what goes on in life. Ministry often is speaking to the hearts of other people. It's teaching the next generation what is important. And one of the things that I think is the Bible set speech, one of the things I think the Bible really emphasizes here is the importance of these people. These, this verse is, is, could be viewed as a throwaway thing. Just one verse mentioning this, these four daughters as, a, as if it was an afterword to Philip, but it's not that. It's saying that these women had an important role in the church. And I don't think that often we emphasize that importance. We see his city, but secondly, I want us to see his demonstration. At the heart of Agabus's prophecy is the visual activity he uses to communicate the Lord's message. We ought to consider both his history and his prophecy. We don't know the amount of time the travelers stayed in Caesarea, but they had a, it's a lengthy time. Look at verse 10. And we as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Agabus has appeared earlier in Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, we read, And in those days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be a dearth throughout the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. We looked at this you know, way back when we were back in Acts chapter 11. And it was an interesting passage because you have here uh, these prophets coming from Jerusalem to, Ag to Antioch. That's where Paul and Barnabas was. That's where uh, we, the focus of Luke's attention had shifted from uh, Jerusalem to Samaria to Caesarea to Antioch. He's looking there and there as Paul and Barnabas are doing their work and encouraging the church and growing it, these men, these prophets come to Antioch and they start prophesying. And this guy gets up and starts prophesying about a uh, famine that's going to affect the whole world during the days of Claudius Caesar. And the church at Antioch decides, because of this prophecy, to send relief to the church in Jerusalem by the hands of Paul and Barnabas. And we, we thought about that. We thought how interesting that was, that even though this famine was going to encompass the whole world, the church at Antioch was not worried necessarily about keeping their own stuff for themselves during the famine, but interested in providing and showing their love to the church at Jerusalem. 
And there's probably some indication of continuity here as Agabus does this as Paul and Barnabas are sending, uh, that encourages Paul and Barnabas to send relief from Antioch to Jerusalem. Paul is doing that same thing here. On the end of his third missionary journey, he has gone through Greece picking up uh, uh, contributions from the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Corinth and bringing them uh, to Jerusalem. And so he meets Agabus here. And because of this, uh, because he knows Agabus, because they've had prior encounters where Agabus has prophesied something that has come to pass, Agabus, uh, Paul understands that Agabus is uh, a reliable prophet. That what Agabus tells Paul, Paul has every reason to believe, will be the case. But Agabus doesn't begin with a prophecy. He begins with an object lesson. Verse 11, And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus, the, thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He takes Paul's belt and uses it to tie his hands and his feet. Uh, we often, when I first encountered this passage, thought to myself, that would be a really cumbersome thing to do because the only belt I knew was leather belts. And I thought, I tried to do it, tie myself with my leather belt and it didn't work all that well. Uh, that's not the belt that uh, Paul was using. It was probably a rope or a cord of some fashion. Uh, and so he, with this, he ties both his hands and feet together. Now, imagine what you would look like if you used... Uh, something the size of your belt to tie both your hands and feet. Think about your ignominious posture uh, that you would be in. And so in this kind of uh, interesting way, Agabus relays his message. Notice the degradation involved, that there are going to be two groups of people here that are mentioned. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, does that progression remind us of anything. The Jews arresting him and turning him over to the Gentiles. Paul is following in the path of Jesus. Jesus, like Paul, resolutely walked to Jerusalem knowing the fate that awaited him there. Jesus was arrested by the Jews and then handed over to the Gentiles. And while not, Paul does not and cannot have the same reason or impact or purpose as the Savior, Paul is doing what Jesus encouraged his disciples do, to do. He is taking up his cross and following Jesus. And we do not need a prophet to give us object lessons and warnings about our future. Scripture is perfectly capable of doing it. Every story in the Bible is an object lesson for us, reminding us of what we are to do and how we are to live. We have the object lesson that Jesus gave us of taking up his cross and following him, the example of Paul doing that. Again, Paul is not doing this in order because he thinks that he is going to atone for the sins of many. He's not doing this uh, because he thinks that uh, he has the same uh, power, influence, or, or prestige as the Lord Jesus. He's doing this because he wishes to honor the Lord Jesus, as we'll see in a little bit. The example of Paul, the example of Jesus, warn us that we cannot pres presume to believe that this life will be free from dangers, from pain, and from struggle. 
Indeed, the Lord warns us of the reverse. And we may not be like Paul. We may not face bonds and betrayal and death. Our cross will look different, and our cross is probably going to look different from every other Christian on planet Earth. God gives us a special responsibility and duty, things that we and only we can do for him. We will suffer differently, but must do so faithfully. More on that in a moment as we see his city, his demonstration, and finally his effect. <clears throat> After the prophecy, the church responds out of care for Paul, but Paul responds with a different care that supersedes his love for the church. We cannot but appreciate the church's care for Paul that is exemplif- exemplified in chapter, uh, verse 12. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him, not to go up to Jerusalem. Two groups of people are are mentioned here, we and they of the place. The we probably refers to those of Paul's company that are mentioned earlier, and those of the place probably refer to the church there in Caesarea. Everyone joins in on the chorus, from Paul's entourage, including Luke, to Philip, his daughters, and the rest of the church, all urging Paul not to avoid Jerusalem. And why are they insisting upon Paul's safety? Are they speaking for the Holy Spirit to induce Paul to change his plan? Or do they have uh, that kind of prophetic insight to say, Paul, uh, we are telling you not to go? Or possibly are they instruments of Satan to hinder Paul from his duty, as Peter did when Jesus told him that he was going to go to Jerusalem to be executed? Peter said, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Who is sinning, this church or Paul? Well, I would encourage you to beware of the false, uh, the fallacy of the false dilemma. Because it's altogether possible that neither of them are sinning. And perhaps they are all acting out of love and care. You see, Paul cares for the church, but... He has a greater love. Look at verse 13. Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine own heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We cannot think of Paul as some kind of coal automaton who sees the tears of, his pe- of the church and is not moved. He says that he is moved. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He feels their care, and he reciprocates. He cares for them, and it breaks his heart to see their turmoil and their pain and the anticipation of what he will have to endure. And perhaps this event here for Paul is even worse than what he will endure in Jerusalem, for we can be willing to endure any hardship that affects us. Our suffering is one thing, but the suffering of those we love and the tears that they have for us are more than we can deal with. This is the fact that Paul expresses in his response to the church's pleading, why are you doing this? You are breaking my heart. More than the danger that I face in Jerusalem is your tears. And yet there is a greater love that Paul has, more than his love for the church. I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Yes, I care about you. Yes, I love you. Yes, you're breaking my heart by your tears, but there's something more important to me. 
There's some, there's a greater love that always, always, always must be first. And even you and the church should recognize and applaud and encourage me to follow this first love. Paul must go to Jerusalem. It is his command from the Spirit, and he is willing to endure imprisonment and death for the sake of Jesus. And seeing his resolution and knowing the rightness of his plan, the church stops. Look at verse uh, 14. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying the will of the Lord be done. This statement of his, it's, 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 it's a statement of resignation in one sense, but it's a, it's a loaded statement of resignation. It's loaded because you hear the same statement from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but thine be done. And here the church in, in this kind of echo, as we've seen this kind of parallelism between the Lord going through to Jerusalem and Paul going to Jerusalem, here they are saying, if this is what God wills, if this is the will, we will submit. My friend, do you know the love of Jesus, the love that eclipses all human love? We do not deserve it because we are all born sinners, justly deserving God's wrath and without hope, except in Jesus Christ. We deserve death and hell, but God loved. And his love is expressed through Jesus, who is God-made man, who came and lived a perfect life for us, who died upon the cross to bear the sins of his people, who rose again the third day to express new life that we have in him. That love is shown to his people, to those who believe, The question is not, is God a God of love? The question is, has God loved you? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you turn from your sin and follow Jesus? It is very significant for us to recognize this fact as believers, that our love of Christ does not, cannot, and ought not erase all of their loves. Instead, it often intensifies them. We often think of love as a zero-sum game, that we have this kind of uh, well of love that is a certain amount to which none can be added and from which any subtraction reduces the amount left. And I don't think that's a proper understanding of the way that love works. After all, God is love and he is infinite. Therefore, uh, something tells me that that view of love is rather deficient. Instead, the, f- the reality is that our ability to love is made manifest and magnified and enabled through the love that we have received in Jesus Christ. We often like to think of this way because we often use it to obviate our duties to others. We love Christ and therefore I have to love you less. That's not really the way it works. The way it works is not to love you less, it's to love him more. It's not a love by subtraction, but a love by addition. The subordination of the love of others to the love of Christ is not by reducing the love that we have to other people, but by increasing and magnifying and reveling in the love that we ought to have for our Savior. We, may not, we are not, ought not fear that we must suppress all other love in order to subordinate it and put it into his proper place, but rather to magnify our love for our Savior. And never 
can we let our love for others violate our fidelity to the Savior? And that love to the Savior requires courage. A courage that is not recklessness. Paul goes to Jerusalem knowing what will come. The church lets him go. I mean, you could think that, you know, there's more of them than there are of him. They could have stuck him in the ground or put him in a pit or send him off, you know, put him on a ship to Rome uh, without him going to Jerusalem at all. There's courage in letting Paul go. There's courage in Paul going and courage that in which Paul recognizes the danger but obeys God anyway. That's what true courage is. That's what God calls his people to be, to recognize that cross that must be taken, the suffering that must be endured, and following and obeying God anyway. Too often I see people confusing courageous obedience to God with recklessness and obstinacy, but the two things are completely different. For the courageous obedience we have to God comes out of love for him. Let's pray together. Blessed Father, may we love you courageously. May we listen to you wisely. May we follow our Savior carefully. Hear our prayer and grant us grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.